We're in the middle of a series called Soul Food, and we're looking at this most important thing about us called our soul, and what do we do with it, and how do we, how do we keep it healthy? And so today we're going to talk about another aspect of that, and that's sort of the, the idea that our soul, taking care of your soul takes work. It's not just that easy. It's sort of something you have to work at, and we're going to discuss that today. Now, I've had a couple of medical procedures in my life. I've had angiograms. If you ever had one of those, you know what that is. That's when somebody, um, they go in through your groin, they, they send this probe into your heart, and they check out your heart. It's better than them like cracking open your sternum and, and opening you up. This is relatively a minor procedure. I had a heart attack when I was 40, several years ago, and so I've had a few of these since then to see they put some stints in and they want to go back in and see if the stints were okay. And, and the last one of these I had was several years ago. I haven't had one recently, but uh, the, the ones prior to my last one all had gone relatively the same way. I, I kind of had an expectation of how this was going to go down. And, and basically you go in, they talk to you for a second, they give you some anesthesia, you go to sleep, and then you wake up, and it's over. It's great, beautiful, awesome. Now, last time I did it, I was in my hometown of Danville, Kentucky. New doctor, I really didn't know, I just assumed it all, they all went the same way. So I'm laying on the gurney, uh, they injected something into my leg, they roll me into the operating room, and the next thing you know, the weirdest thing happens. I feel, I'm laying down, I feel the doctor kind of pushing around down here. And I'm thinking to myself, I believe I'm awake. This feels awake to me. And I didn't know that's what it was supposed to be. And so I'm laying there and I lean up. I didn't want to move too much. And I said, Doc, do you know I'm awake? To which he says, Oh, yes. Oh, yes. This is only a short procedure. Would you like to watch? (laughs) No, I'd like to be asleep, uh, is what I wanted to say. Okay, so I had an expectation that didn't come through. Now, um, there's this really cool verse in Scripture that says, this is somebody praying to God. Surely you desire truth in my inner parts, in the inner parts You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. And I began to wonder, I saw that verse and I thought, what would it be like if we could have an angiogram for the soul? We could kind of look at the the parts of us, our our mind and our our thoughts and our habits and and all these things that comprise our, you know, what, what we do physically, all these things that comprise the soul what would it look like if we did an, a- an analysis of this? You know, when I take my car to the, to the dealer, they put it on a computer and they check all the internal workings. And, and it's, it's amazing to me. They, they come out with this little sheet. And if your car has the check engine light, uh, if it comes on, you take it to the dealer and they plug it in and they can tell you what's wrong. Back in the day, you had to you know, open everything up and try to figure it out. Not today. They have a computer that tells you this. And what would it be like if your heart, your mind, your, your spirit... If your soul could be plugged into a machine and and God could say, this is where you've got some wiring issues. This this is kind of clogged up here. Uh, You're you're not firing on all cylinders. 
in this area of your life. It would be kind of nice to have that sort of level of analysis of our spirits. Well, God has given us a couple of tools to do this. One is uh, Scripture. The Bible talks to us. That's why it's important to read the Bible because it sort of is an uh, analysis of our spirits. And there was a guy named Paul, and he wrote a lot of the New Testament, and he had a couple of young pastors that were sort of his protégés, and one of them was named Timothy. And one time Paul writes to this young pastor named Timothy some information around a soul that isn't doing well. And, and these are kind of characteristics of a soul that's a little bit messed up. And so he says, mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. By the way, uh, every generation thinks their generation is the last days. We look at stuff today and it's like, oh, it can't go on much longer. It's funny though, you read history, they said the same thing in the 1800s, in the 1900s, in the 1700s, in the 100s, and, and we don't know how bad it can get. We all kind of say, hey, it can't get any worse. Well, but look at this. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, lovers, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. Now, that's not the most pleasant little list I've ever heard, right? Lots of really negative stuff there. And let's unpack a little bit of that, because I think some of it, at least, and maybe all of it, is uh, relevant to today. By the way, again, throughout human history, these things all have been relevant to every generation. They're relevant to us as well. So let's take a few of them. Let's just sort of unpack some of them. Lovers of themselves. Um, one word, selfie. I mean, you know, uh, uh, we, we have a whole generation of people who spend their entire day taking pictures of themselves. I mean, it is amazing to me uh, that we take so many selfies. And um, the, the most fun thing to do in all of life, I'm not even teasing, this is, this is the most fun thing to do is when you see somebody taking a selfie, photobomb them. I mean, it really, it is good for your spirit. Uh, it's not in Scripture. That's not from the Lord. It's from me, but uh, trust me on this. Really awesome. So we, we have people who are lovers of themselves. Uh, lovers of money. Lovers of money. Now, I don't know, do, do you all ever feel like, eh, maybe, maybe that's me. Maybe I kind of have a... I mean, some people will say, I don't have any money. How can I be a lover of money? Well... You don't have to have it to, to want it. You know, it's like I'm a lover of six-pack abs. I ain't got them, but I'd like them. You know, I like, I like the look of them. So. All right, quick quiz. In America, the number one tourist attraction last year. What is it? Anybody? Anybody have a guess? What? Times Square, Disney, Las Vegas. Nobody said the big house? What's up with that? I mean, really, uh, Myrtle Beach, y'all don't even rep your state. Okay, anyway. Number one place in all of America, tourist attraction, uh, was the Mall of America in Minneapolis. Forty million people visited the Mall of America. Only 14 million, 16 million visited Disneyland. Grand Canyon got 4.2 million. Um, there's a guy named uh, Henderson, D David Henderson. He's a scholar. He does research on this. And this is his quote. America is a land of compulsive shoppers, and the mall is home away from home and our national pastime. Interestingly enough, um, 
That mall, by the way, has 400 stores, a roller coaster, and, and let's take a road trip. I, I mean, really, it sounds awesome. In 2012, the Boston Globe did a, they asked sort of a provocative question. They, they asked this question, does money change you? And the notion was, I mean, people are like, no, money wouldn't change me, money wouldn't change me. The problem is, the problem with facts is it really messes up our notions sometimes, and research often <laughs> kind of disproves what we would hope about ourselves. We would hope money wouldn't change us, but it kind of does. Let me read some research to you. There's a mounting body of research, and it's showing wealth can actually change how you think and behave and not for the better. Uh, often rich people have a harder time connecting with others. They show less empathy. They often uh, treat other people in a dehumanizing ways. They're less charitable, much less generous, and less likely to help. It's kind of, you'd, you'd think... If I had more money, I would be more generous, not so much. UC Berkeley found, uh, some research at UC Berkeley found that wealthier people tend to be less compassionate toward others in bad situations. Even with the prospect of getting more money, it's called priming. Even with the prospect, people who thought they were going to maybe get an inheritance or have more money or their stocks were going to go up or something, then became less friendly than people who had less money, interestingly enough. And we're all susceptible. Pastors are susceptible. I heard a story about a Baptist pastor. Guy comes in. Guy, the pastor happens to be in the office that day, and, and the guy comes in. He said, uh, my dog died, and I want to give it a Christian funeral. And the pastor's like, man, I'm sorry about your dog, but we don't do funerals for dogs. You, take, you, you go up to the Methodist church, they'll do anything. It's kind of, you know what he's saying? The Methodists, they don't care. And uh, the guy's said, okay, well, well thank you. I'm, I'm sorry that you don't want to do this, but how much do you think would be appropriate to pay the Methodists for this service? I was thinking $10,000, something like that. And the pastor said, whoa, 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 you didn't tell me your dog was Baptist. So we were all susceptible. That's funny. I don't care who you are. And you didn't give me enough. Okay. All right. Here's the thing about giving. Giving breaks the grip of materialism in our lives. When we give then we obviously can't hold on to it too tightly. The problem is we hold on to stuff too tightly. So we're lovers of money. And if you find yourself holding on to things, then you might have a, an issue with being a lover of money. Uh, ungrateful is another one. Ungrateful. And we live in a world that seems to be quite ungrateful. I read this super interesting story about a Polish railroad worker named Jan uh, uh, Griesbach. No, Grzebecki. G-R-Z-E-B-S-K-I. How would you say that? Grzebecki. Say it with me. Grzebecki. Okay. You can't say it either. Great. Okay. It's ski at the end. Grzebecki. Let's call him, let's call him Jan. Okay, won't we? Let's do that. All right. In 1988, he has a train accident. He's hit by a train, which is horrific. He nearly dies, but he doesn't die. And sort of like a modern Rip Van Winkle, he is in a coma for 19 years. So he wakes up from his coma in 2007. Now, in 1988, when he went into a coma, Poland was communist ruled. Uh, they had, he talks about this. He said, you know, we had uh, long gas lines. If you wanted gas, you had to wait in a long line. And, and if you wanted meat, you had to wait in a long line. And you got very, it was poor and 
the quality was horrible, and, and the only thing you could buy at the shops with, with any, uh, you know, volume would be uh, vinegar. You could get a lot of vinegar, he said, but that's about it. Uh, it was, so he wakes up 19 years later to a country that has been freed and now enjoys the benefit of capitalism. And he ta- he, he, he's, he's puzzled, he says. What amazes me is all these people who walk around with their mobile phones and yet they never stop complaining. And his point was, look, we used to live in the midst of communism. We didn't have anything. We had to fight to get gas, to have meat, but we didn't complain. Now you have everything and you're constantly complaining about everything. Then Paul uses words like this. Boastful, proud, slanderous, not lovers of the good. And what he's saying is sin's also the failure to love what's worth loving. It's not just doing bad stuff. It's not loving the good stuff. And he talks about this in another place, a great verse. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about these things that are excellent and worthy praise this is the good stuff it's not just don't do bad things but think about the good things we have this ability it's called free will we choose what we dwell upon it's our choice every time Um, harper lee has a quote people generally see what they look for and hear what they listen for i I asked miriam about this and she said why can't you find your socks And, and so it doesn't always work doesn't always work, but generally speaking, if we focus, let me go back, because that was just such a great verse. If we fix our thoughts on what's true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable, these are good things. This is where our focus needs to be. And then he says, some people are unforgiving. And it is like a cancer in your spirit. When you can't learn to forgive. You all remember many, many years ago, and really it was kind of when I was a teenager, um, which is many, many years ago, uh, the government commissioned some, uh, some people to, to bury some toxic waste in New York uh, around Niagara Falls. A Love Canal, you, you might remember this name. And they sealed these barrels of toxic waste and they buried them under the ground and they... they the, the, the notion was they sealed them so tightly that they would never come open. The problem was they weren't in the ground very long before they began to seep. And this toxic waste began to seep into the, the water system and it would get into people's drinking water and, and folks were dying of cancer and, and vegetation was dying. And this place became a veritable wasteland simply because what was perceived to be buried and gone, really wasn't buried at all. And unforgiveness has a way of resurfacing. We think we've got it buried, but it doesn't really stay buried. That's the problem with unforgiveness. In fact, we forgive people, not because the other people need need it. We forgive because I need it. I forgive because I need to not carry that burden anymore. Now, that was a pretty ugly list, and we didn't talk about all of those things. And, and in your uh, small groups, I, I gave you opportunity to talk about them. And, and so, by the way, if, if you're not in a small group, there's still time to be in a small group. 
And if you want to answer the questions on your own, they're online. There's copies right here. So uh, you wonder what we were doing in small groups. We're just sort of kind of looking at the sermon. And, and um, basically what happens in small group, I preach... And then you guys get in a small group, and you fix all the stuff I mess up. That, that's kind of what happens. You talk about the sermon, and it's like, you should have said this. And that's okay. You, you unpack it much more than I ever could. And I hear great things about those groups, and the discussions are awesome. And, and you're just talking about what we talk about together in, in, in big group time. You get in little group time. All right. Now, as bad as that list was, Paul writes to Timothy again. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners And I am the worst of them all. And there is something to be said for coming to a place where we understand that we're sinners. That we have sin. And this is one of the most remarkable verses in Scripture for me. Because if you compare Paul's life to every one of our lives put together, you know how much he accomplished? And yet when he looked at his own sin, he considered himself the worst of sinners. That, that amazes me. And I'm thinking, okay, is that hyperbole? Is he just sort of putting on to, to impress people? And I don't think so. There's a guy named John Stott. He is a great theologian. And he said, Paul's not saying he did a careful study of every sinner in the human history and found he came in last place. Truth is, rather, when we are convicted by the Holy Spirit, an immediate result is we give up all such comparisons. He, he's saying, I know myself... And I am a sinner. And in my eyes, maybe he's saying, for all the grace that Jesus gave me, for me to sin at all is abhorrent to me. I, I kind of feel is that. And for us, those of us who've accepted the grace of Christ and his forgiveness, and yet we still sin, maybe we sin chronically, Maybe it's a hard place to put yourself, but think about it. Don't think about you in relationship to anyone else. Just am I right now, this moment, a sinner? And I, I think for the next few minutes, we can probably put ourselves in the seat of a sinner. We know what it feels like because we are sinners. So what do we do? Well, let's go on. First Peter. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against what? What what is at war? Sinful desires war against what? Your soul. In in our day, the word soul kind of has this, kind of has this uh, granola-eating, Birkenstock-wearing, flowers-in-your-hair, herbal tea, peace man kind of... uh, Hippie vibe to it. Peace, man. You know, kind of, kind of hit. You're driving a, um, a, a VW Beetle or you're driving, you know, one of the mini buses. And, and this is kind of the vibe the word soul gets. But from this text, what we understand is that soul work is war. It is warring. These evil desires are warring against your soul. Now, God's choice for you, God's design for you, is that your choices and your thoughts and your desires and your soul live in perfect harmony with one another. That, that's kind of what he wants. The problem is it doesn't always work that way. And we see it in verses like this. Bless the Lord, Lord O oh my soul, and all that is within me. 
Everything working in harmony. Jesus put it this way. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And it's interesting to me, and I don't think it's just a coincidence that Jesus talks about all the parts of your soul in this verse. He talks about your heart, which is your will and your choices. He talks about your mind, which is your thoughts and your desires. He talks about your strength, which is your body. He talks about your soul, which binds them all together. And we've been talking about that the last few weeks. The soul binds all these. It's the operating system of me. The soul binds all these things together. Jesus talks about it too. Now, what sin does, it breaks the connection with God and his love. So when I sin, it breaks that connection, my my relationship with him. And it messes me up. It kind of gets me out of sync. And that's when my thoughts go astray, and that's when my desires go astray, and that's when uh, I I do things I know I shouldn't do. And Paul talks about that as well. I don't know why I do things I know I shouldn't do. And I don't do things I know I should do. Because sin kind of messes all that wiring up. And James uses an interesting expression around it. He does it a couple times. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify, uh, purify your hearts. You double-minded. Now, the word could literally be translated double-souled. That we're, we have a fractured soul. And you hear language around this all the time. We say things like, my life is falling apart. Or I can't seem to get my act together. Or um, I'm falling apart at the seams. Or I seem to be coming to pieces. There's a fracturing. There's a, a double. There, there's a, a double-mindedness about us and our desire needs to be to put uh, all of these pieces together where they're working in harmony my mind and my body and my spirits and my soul kind of all in unison now let me do a little more research with you just kind of give you some here there's a guy named dan airly he works uh he's a professor at a university that rhymes with puke uh, in North Carolina, there's a reason. There's a reason for that. That's from God, not me. And anyway, he wrote a book called The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, How We Lie to Everyone, Especially Ourselves. And I think that was written uh, for all of those classes that North Carolina gave that nobody really went to. Anyway, 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 anyway. Just teasing, you North Carolina people. But we don't make up classes in Kentucky. Okay, okay. Now... His research, it's amazing, by the way. You, uh, it's kind of complicated, but it, it's cool stuff, and I'm going to show you something. He talks about the fact that we human beings are driven by two primary motivations. Number one, I like to receive selfish gain. I look out for number one, and, and I'm willing to do kind of anything to get stuff or to get fame or to get whatever. I might lie. I might cheat. I might steal. Uh, Look at online dating sites and how much lying goes on there. There's a reason people don't use their picture from today. They use their picture from 10 years ago. There's a reason that happens. Because you look better back then, more than likely. It's kind of how it works. And so we want to receive selfish gain. This is our motivation of ours. It could be monetary. It could be relationship. It could be kind of pretty much anything. But we want selfish gain. But we also, at the same time, simultaneously, want to be able to think well of ourselves. Well, well, you can see that's a little bit in conflict. So he writes this. This This is an amazing sentence. 
This is where our amazing cognitive flexibility, that's the language he uses, amazing cognitive flexibility. In other words, we can fool ourselves. It comes into play. As long as we cheat by only a little bit, we can benefit from cheating and still view ourselves as being marvelous human beings. And then he does, he did research on this. This is so funny. Um, I used to teach some classes in college. Miriam would teach some classes in college. And what's super funny is around exam time, relatives seem to die. They're dropping like flies. I mean, it's amazing. And so he did research around this. You you have to hear this. Over the course of many years of teaching, I have noticed that there typically seems to be a rash of deaths among students' relatives at the end of the semester. Usually, the week of finals or the day a paper is due. Kind of funny how that works. Um, By the way, does anybody want to venture a guess as to which relative gets knocked off most? Grandma, yeah, you've done it. Okay, great. My grandma died seven times. Yes, okay, awesome. Okay, you know, you know. There's a guy named Mike Adams, a professor at Eastern Connecticut State University, and he (laughs) he did more research on this. He has shown that grandmothers are 10 times more likely to die before a midterm and 19 more times to die before a final exam. That's if you're a good student. Look at, listen to this. Students who are failing are 50 times more likely to lose grandma than non-failing students. And this is his conclusion. The greatest predictor, predictor of mortality among senior citizens is their grandchildren's GPA. Isn't that awesome? So, the moral of the story is if you're a grandmother, don't let your kids go to college, grandkids go to college, especially if they're dullards, because uh, you're toast at that point. Um, and Airely goes to, on to point out that um, any single act of dishonesty, even little stuff, shapes how we view ourselves. Now, I'm in no way a legalist. I, I, I sort of cringe at legalism. But when we convince ourselves that we could get away with stuff, little stuff, then we start to get away with big stuff, or at least we think we can. And he gives a couple of examples. Standing in the express lane at the grocery store when it's 10 items or less and you have 12. Anybody want to confess right now? Thank you. I see that hand. Bless you. Bless you. Trying to board a plane. You know, they board planes in zones. It's zone one time. And and do you ever, I I really don't like the people that get to board zone one. I try to trip them, uh, really, uh, in the love of Jesus. I I really do. What about when you go to the dentist and they say, have you been flossing? What do you say? Yeah. (laughs) And how often do you floss? I flossed once. Last time I was here. Uh, That's kind of how... And sometimes measuring wrongdoing increases so much that <laughs> we sort of, we, we do the little stuff and we kind of convince ourselves it's okay. But then there's a, there's a point, let, let, give, let me give you an example. You're, you're, you're on a diet and you're only fudging a little bit. And I use the word fudge strategically here. You're only fudging a little bit, right? And you have a you have a chocolate Sunday nightcap. You know, I mean, really, what, what's the harm? And you eat some Pringles because they're from God. And you do some stuff like that. And you cheat a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. And then all of a sudden, you, you step on the scale, and you haven't lost weight. You've gained weight. And at that point, you sort of say, well, 
What's the use? And, and there's this point where you get to where you've done a whole bunch of little things, and it's just like, well, I'm over the edge now. There, there, is, there is a psychological research around this, and they have a term for it, where you get to the point where you go, forget it, man, I'm just going to binge. It's called the what-the-heck effect. That's when you can't pretend anymore, and you just say, well, I'm just going to do it anyway. Kind of interesting, what-the-heck effect. Now, good news. We kind of done a little bad news here. There's good news. God has given us a probe for our hearts. I talked about it early on. Hey, wouldn't it be awesome if there was an angiogram for your heart? Well, come to find out there is. He's called the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, it's best for you, my disciples, that I go away because if I don't, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, won't come. But if I go away, then I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sins and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. An advocate is for you. They are for you. And conviction has sort of a negative term, but really conviction is a God-given ache to do the right thing, to, to do well by God. And the Holy Spirit helps us know what's right and what's wrong. When I have a pain, I, I do something about it. You know, the, the problem is when something happens to me and I don't know that it's happening. Um, the other day I was mowing the yard and we have some thistles kind of on the edge of the yard and I had mowed around it and had kind of gotten into them a little bit. And, and the next thing you know, I, I look down and my legs are just covered in blood from, from where I had gotten into those thistles. I, I didn't know it. I just thought it was sweat because... It's always 100% humidity here in, in this part of the world. Um, and, and for some reason, I thought fall would be different, but, but no. Um, and the Holy Spirit reminds us. We, we want this. In fact, maybe the takeaway for the day is we can pray for this. God, uh, allow the Holy Spirit in my life to convict me of sin. I, I don't want to be part of that what the heck people. I'm just going to do what I want to do. Or I don't want to be a, a part of the people who, who just convince myself that I'm not that bad. Or that this little sin isn't that big a sin. I, I want to be convicted. I, I want you to, to prick my heart when, when I do wrong things. W- one more little piece of research. I found this amazing. Over 400 UCLA students were divided into two groups. And they were given two different assignments, but similar. One group, 225 students or so, were asked to remember 10 books they were assigned to read in college. Or in, a, in high school, sorry. So, you know, write down 10 books you were assigned to read in high school. Now, they cheated like crazy. They, in this room, they're looking at each other's papers. They're making stuff up. They're, they're just cheating. Now, the other group, 225 UCLA students, not Christians, just people, uh, they're, they're asked to recount the Ten Commandments, as many as you can come up with. And, and this was interesting. This is Dr. Early again. And that, he says, 
Merely the act of trying to remember the Ten Commandments made them think, oh, I was made for something better than this. None of them cheated, not even one. And then he says, and that was despite the fact that no one in the group was able to recall all ten. It wasn't like they were any good at it. But there was something bigger. Now, I'm not saying that moral rules are going to transform a human being. That's not what I'm saying. But the psalmist writes, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. There's something to be said for having a soul that's whole. And in wholeness, we're listening to the Holy Spirit's voice in our, uh, in our hearts. And we're reading our scriptures because these things guide us in life. It's not just my feelings. It's not, ju- not just, you know, a notion. Not just my intellect. I'm, I'm using God's word to guide my, my life. I'm using God's spirit to speak truth into my life. By the way, God's voice will always, will always, always line up with God's word. And when I have that combination, my soul can be whole, and, and my desires and my thoughts and my habits can all line up, and my soul can be whole. And it's the only way for my soul to be whole. I'm going to pray for us today that we might listen more attentively to God's voice in our hearts this week. That we might be attuned to the times where we're tempted to do those little things that we don't think are that big a deal, but really are. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you've given us this moment. And we pray that you would allow the Spirit to work in us the way that you called him to. To convict us of our sins. To be people who hear your voice and obey your voice. This is what we want for our lives. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.